Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's gospel is a reading from John, verse 18, 28 to 40. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, My kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was abandoned. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, we still have so many voices shouting at us from outside to buy more, achieve more, do more, strive more. We have that voice of the inner critic from within that says, you've messed up. You're going to get it wrong. All those other people, those verdicts that have been passed on you, they were right. Help us to hear your voice that speaks life and truth. However we find ourselves in this very moment, 
believing or unbelieving, somewhere in between. Some of us remembering a time where we used to believe these things and you seemed so close to us and now you seem a million miles away and we're wondering, what happened to you? Or what happened to us? Help us to see in the midst of all our wandering and our confusion, in all our beauty and our brokenness, that you see us, you know us, and you love us more than we even love ourselves. And you reveal that love most deeply in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who gives himself on our behalf. And so now we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed. And you give us the grace to believe and trust that you really do love us this much. And then send us out to be agents of your renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. The passage we just heard is a passage that's being read in churches and faith communities around the world today. I, mean, I don't know how many languages. It has to be in the hundreds, thousands. Every time zone is going to read today about this trial of Jesus. It's been set for a long time. It just so happens that this week, at least America, has been focused on a couple other trials as well. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as we watch and we look on. The trial of uh, what happened with Ahmaud Arbery as well. And the thing that we're all looking for is justice. Now, we might disagree on what justice looks like, but the thing we all want at the bottom of it is justice. One theologian and scholar, N.T. Wright, calls this the echo of a voice, that it's on the human heart that we long for justice, except we lock the wrong people up and we let the wrong people go free. We want it so badly, but we just can't seem to achieve it. And here we have Jesus in this passage, the victim of injustice. It's a heavy passage. Now, we're going to pause on our reading through Genesis. We left off last week on Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham has Isaac, and he's asked to give Isaac up, this great vision, this promise that God had given Abraham. You will have this son, and through this son, you will have descendants that will outnumber the sand on the sea and the stars in the sky, and now I want you to trust me and give him up. And in that moment, it, there's that ringing line from Abraham. He says, the Lord will provide a ram. The Lord will provide a lamb. The Lord will provide something. I don't see it, you don't see it, but God's going to come through somehow. And real quick, Bible in a minute, to get from there to where we are today, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. Joseph with the technicolor dream coat and all the amazing dreams. Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, rises through the ranks, becomes one of the most important wisdom advisors to the king rises incredibly. And then it says, and then there was another Pharaoh after that one, and they had forgotten about Joseph and the Jews. And they end up in slavery in Egypt. And the people are asking, where is God? Is God going to come through? Are we going to be stuck in slavery forever? And God comes through with Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then they wander in the wilderness. They move from slavery to new life, from nothing to promised land, from being a people with no identity to being truly the people of God and living into that identity for a while. And then they forget. They begin exploiting the poor and going to war with their neighbors. And so the prophets rise up. And the prophets are continually calling the people back to God, saying one day God will come himself in the Messiah, in the Christ, in the flesh, and will make all things right. 
And then the temple's obliterated in 586 B.C. And they're sent off to exile in Babylon. And then they're brought back into the promised land. And it just goes like this for a long, long time, for centuries. Two steps forward, three steps back. And then there's silence, which brings us to the context of this story today. They're in Jerusalem. And the Roman Empire, the strongest military political empire on the face of the earth, is occupying their land. And they're being crushed. They're waiting for God to break through. God had made all these promises and zero is happening. And then Jesus shows up. In every bit of teaching, taking those outsiders and making them insiders. In every proclamation, speaking the word of God, not on behalf of God, but as God himself. In every healing, reversing the brokenness of this world, where the hungry are fed, where the blind see, where those who can't walk, walk, where families are brought back together. What's he doing? He's making the promise good. This is the beginning of the new creation dawning. And now, this story. That's like Bible in three minutes. That's not too bad. We're at Passover. The festival, the great festival, where they would remember the night that God set the people of Israel free from slavery in Egypt. The night of Passover. There would be about 100,000 people in Jerusalem on this night for one of the greatest pilgrimages and parties of the year. And the last night before this story, Jesus would have his final supper with his best friends. Would be betrayed, would be arrested. He was arrested by Caiaphas, the high priest, and then taken to the Roman regional governor, Pilate. And I just want to make a quick note, correct the record here, and any good scholar, theologian, or pastor should do this. Oftentimes in the Gospel of John, in this part, it references the Jews, and the Jews are the antagonists. And this has been used throughout history to promote anti-Semitism. And it's just simply a terrible, narrow reading of Scripture. Obviously, the Bible is not down on the Jews. Jesus was a Jew, and the first Christians were Jews. The first Christians did not seek to start a new religion. The first Christians were Jews waiting for the Messiah, and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, so they followed him. What's more Jewish than that? So simply, when John is saying the Jews, he's not leading toward hating on anybody because of their ethnic or religious identity. It's his shorthand for the religious authorities that colluded with the empire to bring Jesus to the cross, okay? All right, now back to the story. So you have Pilate, the governor from Rome, kind of a puppet governor, regional governor. He's, he's on a small outpost in Jerusalem. I mean, you'd much rather be in Rome where there's air conditioning or whatever. He's out there in Jerusalem trying to manage this Middle Eastern town that is on the verge of upheaval at any moment. But he is the highest ranking official in the land. And then you have Caiaphas, the high priest. And what you have is the highest political leader and the highest religious leader colluding to put Jesus on the cross unjustly. And it's interesting because they're here to put Jesus on trial, but Jesus shows up remarkably sovereign. It's almost as though Jesus is the judge and they are on trial. When Pilate asks Jesus a question, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus answers with another question. And it's almost as if he's saying, Pilate, are you listening 
Are you paying attention to what's happening around you? This is the most important moment of your life. Don't miss it. What if Jesus is saying that to you right now? In the midst of all your cares and your concerns and all you have going on, what if he's saying, are you listening? Are you paying attention? I'm at work in the midst of all of it. That's part of what we do as a church is we help each other listen and pay attention. And we're doing it right now. So here we are. Pilate asks three questions who reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. Pilate asks, are you the king? Second, what is truth? And third, Pilate turns to the crowd and asks, do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? So let's look at Pilate's first question. To Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He asks this twice, in fact, in verse 33, and then repeats it in verse 37. And the lesson here is Jesus is the true king, but a king unlike any other, a king of an upside-down kingdom, because it's actually right-side up in a world that's upside-down. What does this kingdom look like? Jesus points out that if his kingdom were of the normal type, his followers would fight to stop him from being handed over, and they nearly did, in fact. He restrained them. In verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not from this world. Note, he didn't say my kingdom is not of this world or not for this world. In fact, we pray, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, for example, Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. If it was, it would operate like the kingdoms and the empires established on violence and continued through coercion. The first audience and the eyewitnesses of this event would remember Judas Maccabeus, who 200 years earlier had led a revolt, taking power by force and violence and celebrated. Of course, they'd be familiar with Herod the Great, who through military conquest put down a rebellion and earned his way into power. They would all have in their mind Caesar, the leader of Rome, of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which was peace at the tip of the spear, it said, oh yeah, we will have peace. And if you step out of line, we'll cut your head off. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. It's entirely different. It originates in the Trinitarian love of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with overflowing, self-giving, creative, sacrificial love that overflows into this creation. And so the point is, Jesus' kingdom originates in heaven, the presence and power of God, but it comes to this world and it's for this world. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we're preparing for as we say the light has come into the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. That God has become one of us so that we might become one with God. That that heavenly overflowing creative power has entered into this world. It's not from this world, but it is for this world. This is why we take four weeks before Christmas in the Advent season, we take four Sundays to consider how we are anticipating for that sort of light to come into our world, how we are longing and waiting for God to break through and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The season of anticipation and longing and waiting. 
And so we do it together. We do it as a church community. We remind each other that His light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. And we participate as citizens of that coming kingdom. You know, kingdom and king, they sound so bad to us. They're almost off-putting to us because we picture kingdoms of this world where kings and queens and rulers and despots and dictators and warlords amass power, hold it at the barrel of a gun and then use it on their behalf to crush other people. But in Jesus' kingdom, he has absorbed all the violence and reigns in glory, power, honor, peace, in shalom for this world. Which makes us pause and ask, if, you're a, if you are a citizen of that kind of kingdom, if you're a Christian, what does that look like in your life? How does it change the way you view your job? How does it influence the way you look at your money? the way you spend your money, the way you pour your money out on behalf of others in generosity so that they might flourish? How does that impact the way you look at relationships? Instead of seeing your spouse or your partner or your best friend as someone who needs to fulfill your every need, be the answer to your problems, to complete you, instead of seeing them as that, saying, what can I do for this person? How can I love this person sacrificially with no strings attached? That's the end of codependency. That's the end of being a slave to your job where you need to get recognition and status from it, but rather you can work hard, strive to do your best simply for the joy and pleasure of doing a good job and doing it well. A different kind of kingdom altogether, which makes us a different type of citizen. Napoleon, the French general, was said to have written in exile, he said, I built a kingdom on force and it has melted away. Jesus built a kingdom on love, and it still stands, and it will stand. He's the true king, and he's also the king of truth. See what I did there? He's the true king, and he's also the king of truth. Which leads us to Pilate's second question. In verse 38, he asks, what is truth? That's the question of our culture. In a social media world where there are algorithms that determine what version of the truth is delivered to your inbox or to your screen, which contributes to polarization so that you end up in an echo chamber of people that just reinforce your existing view against those people over there who get it wrong, but meanwhile, they're getting their own version of the truth against yours. It creates polarization, tribalism, which we see leads to violence everywhere, if not physical, at least verbal, emotional relational, but we also have seen that it leads to the storming of a capital, which I would say is about as big as it gets. What is truth? That's the question of our culture. Who says they know truth? We're suspicious of anyone who claims to know or to have absolute truth. We say that their truth claim, that's just a power play. They want to use that to keep power, to push other people down, or they're, man they're manipulating. Or we say that's arrogant hubris. Who do they think they are to say that they have the truth? <clears throat> so we have this allergic reaction to anyone who claims to have absolute truth. They repel us. We rebel against them. We resist them. We condemn them. Now, ironically, the statement, there's no such thing as absolute truth, 
We all create our own version of the truth. The truest thing is whatever you feel resonates most deeply inside you. That is actually a statement of absolute truth. The absolute truth is there are no absolute truths. So you see, relativism relativizes itself. To say that person's claim on truth is a power play, that statement is in itself a version of a power play because it disempowers the truth teller. So the point is, we can't escape it. We can't get away from it. Everyone claims to have their own version of the truth. And where does it get us? Pilate, in our passage, looking at Jesus, would say, what is truth? The only truth that Pilate knows is the truth at the tip of a, of a sword. Or maybe we'd say the truth at the barrel of a gun. Pilate's version of political truth is, my truth against your truth. My sword against your sword. My power against your weakness. My cross to hang Jesus' naked body on. And viewing truth that way, everyone has their own version of the truth, then and now leads to increased violence, more manipulation, scattered lives, leaving you feeling more exhausted, more anxious, more scared, and more confused. And here's the question. Is there anything that can hold together your scattered life and mine? What can give you direction in a confusing world? Is there deeper meaning? Is there greater purpose than your own existential moment, than simply seeking pleasure or success? Can you find stability in a shifting world? Here, Pilate asks the question, what is truth? Earlier in John 14, Jesus answered that question when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All you are looking for is found in me. We learn here that truth is not merely more data or more info. Truth is a person. The revelation of God in the flesh who holds all reality together. Jesus in John chapter 8 said, I am the truth and the truth will make you free. Truth that leads not to violence, but to peace. Not manipulation, but comes to give life. Which means that to be a Christian and to have faith is not to retreat into a fantasy world where your hands are covering your eyes and your fingers are in your ears and it blocks out reality into this fantasy world. No, no, no. Rather, it's exactly the opposite. To be a Christian means to be grounded in the bedrock of reality with your eyes and your ears open, facing anything. Jesus talks about this when he compares the life of a person who builds their house on the sand to a person who builds their house on a rock. A person who builds their house on the sand says when the winds come and the waves rise, the, sand, the house blows away because its foundation was not secure. But anyone, he says, who builds their house, who hears my words and puts them into practice is like someone who builds their house on a rock. And when the winds come and the waves rise, not if, representing the cares and the worries of this world, when the winds come and the waves rise, the house will still stand because the foundation is secure. He says, build your life on me. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the bedrock of all reality. 
Friends, what foundation are you building your life on? Is it strong enough? I mean, it might be strong enough and beautiful enough when the weather's good, but when the winds come and the waves rise, is the foundation strong enough? Is it noble enough to hold your life together? See Him as the reigning Savior, the way, the truth, and the life, and relate all other questions and decisions around Him. Pursue Him. Now, look, this is scary. Why on earth would you ever do that? I get it. The prospect of giving over your life and your will to the care of Jesus is preposterous to some of you, and I understand it. It's scary. It's terrifying because we are conditioned, especially in the West, in the, in the post-enlightenment, individualistic world, we give control to nobody. We want to be the master of our destiny, the captain of our fate. The question is, how's that working for you so far? Why would you ever give your life over to Jesus as you follow him? And the answer is, because you can trust him. His truth frees you. His kingly authority lifts you up. He is a king, but he's the king who gives himself for you. Which leads us to the third question that Pilate asks. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate puts in front of the crowd two accused people. Barabbas and Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, come in the flesh, the Son of the Father, come on our behalf. And Barabbas, whose name actually means, Bar means son, Abba means daddy, son of the daddy, son of the father. Here we have in front of us two sons of the father. One who comes as the prince of peace to lay down his life on behalf of the world. And one who, the scriptures tell us, is a brigand a fighter, a violent man, probably someone who joined in or led some sort of political rebellion to take power for himself. Pilate says, which one do you want? And the world says, give us Barabbas. We want the man of violence. It's been the way of the world ever since. And Barabbas will become the first person Jesus died to save. As Jesus goes forward toward the cross, Barabbas goes free. Barabbas will be the first person Jesus died to save, but he will not be the last. Jesus goes on to take punishment for crimes he didn't do while Barabbas goes free. And what is Barabbas going to say as he watches Jesus walk toward the cross? That's my cross Jesus is carrying. Those are my nails he's receiving in his hands. Barabbas is experiencing the great exchange. As Jesus goes on to take the condemnation and punishment that he didn't deserve, the punishment and condemnation that Barabbas did, Jesus takes it all on our behalf. Later, St. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, will write, Jesus, who did nothing wrong, is condemned for everything, so that we, who have done everything wrong, can be condemned for nothing. And later, the Apostle Paul actually writing in the first century, to the early church in Rome, Paul will write, So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A picture of the gospel, the good news. We, the guilty, who have brought condemnation on ourselves through the things we have thought, 
said and done to others and to ourselves, we who deserve the punishment go free as Jesus takes the brokenness of this world on our behalf. Don't miss also the bigger context that actually gives this cosmic meaning. This wasn't just merely a good teacher dying at the hands of the Roman and religious authorities. We actually have plenty of those. This was the Son of God Himself taking the brokenness of the world upon Himself and doing something about it. And here's the clue. In verse 28 it says, It was early in the morning. This was the last day in the earthly ministry of the historical Jesus. And it is the dawning of the most important period in world history. The morning of new creation is dawning. Remember, John points out the occasion for everybody being gathered in Jerusalem at this time. They were there for Passover. To remember God bringing the people out of slavery in Egypt into freedom through the Passover lamb. And as the lambs are being prepared nearby for the Passover sacrifice, look at Jesus here, the Lamb of God, being prepared for death that will not only save guilty Barabbas, but all people from our brokenness and shame and pain that we inflict and is inflicted upon us. Hearken all the way back to Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, waiting and looking. The Lord will provide a lamb. The Lord will provide a way forward. Remember John the Baptist in John 1 saying, Look, when he sees Jesus, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And see Jesus now, preparing for the cross. The true King has come, but He comes to give His life on behalf of all. He invites you into His kingdom. And He invites you in not only as a royal subject, as a citizen of this new kingdom, but as a child of the King. You are royalty. You are beloved. The King of Truth invites you into a more substantial, solid, secure, grounded relationship with reality at the foundation of all creation. And that reality is you were built for more. You were made for more. You were made to know His love and to live in His peace and to redirect all of that renewal energy out into this world as we follow Him together. Let's follow Christ the King together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray now that you would teach us, convince us of your great love for us. Send us out in your peace to love others how you love us. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time, help us to see, Jesus, you are the true King who gives your life on our behalf, who loves us more than we love ourselves, who when we give ourselves to you, we don't lose our true selves, but rather we begin to find out who we really are and who we're created to be. So give us the grace to follow you, to trust you, Wherever you lead, we pray in your name. Amen.